So this is not a quote that I was going to include in the talk, but here it is at the top of this piece of paper, and it just seems so fitting. I thought I would start with it. It says this, Hopi elders engage multiplicity by referring to the ineffable as a mighty something. Wisdom instructs the elders that one cannot stake life on limited human perspectives. There must be more. And so the elders inquire into the nature of ontology, social location, and the universe with the humble acceptance of an abiding wonder for the thing not named. Huh. <clears throat> My kind of people. So, you know, it's lovely. I love the rhythms of retreats, and I love the sense that each evening, or sometimes in the afternoon, I know here, but each day, let's say, we come to this place where we all stop and we all sit down, and sometimes we tell stories, like the other night we hear the story. Oh, Uncle Bob, tell us the story about the Buddha. You know, and we reflect and think about these teachings and our practice and our lives, um, really seeking to see, you know, how can we embody the teachings? How can you actually put them to work in your own life? So last night, Bob spoke with great passion. Wasn't it wonderful? Oh, my goodness. I thought he was going to go up in flames a couple of times. <laughs> it was so fabulous. And he, so he spoke with all this passion about, no flames, <laughs> about how we create um, so much suffering by selfing, really making everything about I, me, and mine, and about othering. So I want to pick that thread up and keep going a little bit. So by now, when we've heard something from most of you, uh, I've heard something from all of you and the second meeting for, from some of you. You know, we find that if you're doing a retreat like this over the space of a week or longer, if you're lucky to get a longer retreat, and it really feels like the mind and the heart get more spacious. There's somehow more room. And the more you go inward, the more space there seems to be. It's kind of weird that way, you know. And we begin to see, if you're paying any attention, that there's a whole universe in there, you know, all kinds of things going on, many parts, physical parts, psychological parts, emotional parts, spiritual parts, that all seem to work together. And, you know, after a bit of working together, what shows up is you, you know, this event that calls itself you. So we inhabit, of course, uh, also a vast universe, huge universe. And um, the perennial saying from perennial, all different perennial wisdom traditions says, as above, so below. So this vast, vast universe outwardly and this vast, vast universe inwardly. So this is interesting if we begin to take this seriously, but one author that I read recently says, 
nearly all formal religious traditions, all formal religious traditions, embody imperial sentiment, a derogatory view of creation, and a distinctly male patriarchal bias. And I have to say that I, as a woman, agree with that rather considerably. And I find myself really drawn to consider creation, for example, more and more, the beauty of creation and what it is that we are here. And I find myself really wanting to ponder the stars, learn more about them. I did that a lot of that at one point. And to really see if I can look at the big picture, the biggest picture that I can possibly find at any given moment. Now, I'm very aware that I'm getting smaller, literally smaller. I'm shrinking, at least in height, not always around the middle. And uh, my projected lifespan is diminishing rather rapidly. But still, I wonder, what does it mean? What does it mean to live in such a big universe with billions, trillions, trillions of stars and galaxies and planets and to inhabit a body which does, in fact, seem to mirror this macrocosm? Barbara Brown Taylor, who's a very interesting Episcopal priest, says, whatever language you prefer, the apparent truth is we belong to a web of creation in which nothing, absolutely nothing, is inconsequential. Isn't that wonderful? Nothing, absolutely nothing is inconsequential. But the problem is, Pretty much all of our traditional philosophies and religions are old. And they all come, they all merged during that spell of time, which we call the Axial Age. So it was, began with the Buddha 2,600 years ago, and on his heels fairly quickly followed Confucius and Lao Tzu and Jesus and Muhammad. Isn't that amazing? I'm always astounded when I think about all these folks showing up in a relatively short window of time. And then, not too much since then. Certainly no more Buddhas or no more Jesuses or Confucius. And all during that time, and for quite some time afterward, the notion of our reality was limited pretty much by what we could see from this planet. The assumption for most people was that the earth was flat, that something good was up there. You can name whatever good you want up there. And the bad stuff was down there. Some of the Arabs, some of the Chinese began to see that that might not be true. But for the most part, we have flat earth theologies and flat earth philosophies, including Buddhism. Buddhism gets a little extra in there, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And we were convinced that that's how it was. You know, and our religion and our practice reflected that. So 
for many, even though science, you know, it's all the amazing things. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's quite wonderful, actually, to be as old as I am. So when I came in, they were just beginning to figure out that the galaxy wasn't the universe. Imagine, you know, you guys are so used to the Hubble and, you know, all those pictures with all those galaxies. We didn't have that. We didn't have that. So it's just beginning to happen. And so for a lot of people, the, their practice and their theologies are lagging way behind what we know is true from science. All right, so that's the first piece. So the second piece, a little more fun, um, is about my island, the island of Hawaii, where I live and work and practice. I dance hula. I'm learning to speak Hawaiian. So, you know, things are rolling along there. So this next little bit is from Ranger Mary Grace, because I work in the park a couple days a week as a ranger wearing my cute little Boy Scout-type uniform. So we know, we know that on this planet, the planet is covered with tectonic plates, right? And the plates move around. And sometimes they move apart, and sometimes they smash up together, and sometimes oceans move in, and sometimes mountain ranges rise up like that. And we also know that all over this planet, there are a series of hotspots. The Canary Islands is one, Yellowstone is one, which could get interesting at some point, and Hawaii is one. So there's a hot spot out there in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And what that means is it's a place where the magma comes up to the, through the Earth's crust. And as it comes up, in this case on the bottom of the ocean, it begins to spread out and it builds and it builds and it builds and it builds. And over several hundreds of thousands of years, it creates an island. That's how the Hawaiian island chain was made. Now that island chain, you might think of it, you know, there's the big island down at the bottom and there's Kauai up at the top and maybe a few more dribbling along. But you know what? It goes all the way up to the Aleutian Islands. And when it gets north of the islands that you can see, those islands are now underwater. When they get to the Aleutian Islands, the Pacific plate dives under the North American plate and they are gone. They're done. Well, so the islands that are up there now, about to go under that plate, were where Hawaii was 80 million years ago. And Hawaii, in another 80 million years, so don't wait up, will be up there about to dive under the Pacific plate. Astounding, huh? So in the islands, you know, Kauai, up in the north, some of you have probably been there, is the oldest. It's eroding a lot. It's sinking down into the ocean. Oahu is the next one. <coughs> no volcanic activity, not connected to the hotspot anymore. Then Maui, which actually used to be Maui, Lanai, and Kaho'olawe were all one island at one point. Now they're three. They're sinking. And then the big island, which is still, as you are well aware, very connected to the hotspot. <clears throat> but even up at the north end of the island, 
that the oldest volcano, which is Kohala, is not connected anymore. So it's moving off. And in fact, there's a new, a new island forming just south of the big island. Um, it will, it's due up, we think, in about 50,000 years. But I'm told, and I did look, at, look for this once, and I did find it, that you can buy real estate. <laughs> I don't recommend it. I think it's a, it's either a joke or a mean scam because you won't live long enough. You know, people, huh? Really, really. So 18 months ago, this huge eruption began and large portions of this beautiful island were covered with lava. Not as much as the news wanted you to think. I mean, the news had people evacuating on Oahu, which is ridiculous. But a lot of acres were covered. We lost 700 homes. We lost some hot ponds and a beautiful tide pool that was so big that you could snorkel in it, some cultural sites. It was really, really hard and sad. And they are gone forever. It's not like a forest fire or a flood where once the water goes away, then you kind of go back in and clean up and rebuild if you need to, but maybe you don't. These places are under about 100 feet of lava at this point, so you don't get them back. And not only that, some of you I know have been to the summit of Kilauea, which is the volcano, right where I live. I'm about three miles away from the summit caldera. That summit caldera collapsed, and it dropped 1,600 feet. That's a quarter of a mile. We had 500 earthquakes a day for about three and a half months. And of that 500, we could feel hmm, 60, 70, 80. Most of them not too big, threes, fours. But about once a day, we'd have a 5-3 or a 5-5. Five, five. So that would sort of go ka-chunk, 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 ka-chunk. Then we'd get a breather for a couple of hours. And then it would start all over again. It was quite amazing. So this ground that I had walked on and hiked on and looked at and loved was disappearing into a really big hole. A really big hole. So no one lives there. It's one of the really beautiful things about the islands. You do not live there without getting the idea that this earth, our home, this solid, stable planet is not. It's neither solid nor stable, and it's still being created. So we have several... Um, many, many added acres of new land. I don't know the exact number, but it's a lot that were added as the lava flowed into the ocean and began to build up out, out there. So the island is getting bigger, you know, even when this sort of thing happens. So the continents are still moving around and the mountains are rising and falling. And the ocean, of course, we know this because we talk about it a lot. The ocean is now showing up where it hasn't been for a long time, you know. It, it's done that before, but it's doing it faster now because of the way that um, we have created so much difficulty with climate change. So, you know, we're saying, seen a lot in the papers recently, you know, goodbye Venice 
and probably goodbye New Orleans and goodbye chunks of Manhattan and who knows. So it's pretty hard to hold on to this idea that everything is fixed, isn't it? It's pretty clear that it's not. Now, as I said, Buddhism is a bit better off as a philosophy. It has its share of magical thinking more in some parts of the Buddhist world than others. Um, but it also at least has the notion that there are eons and eons and eons of time and even many universes. So it's a little more compatible with modern um, cosmological thinking. But this is a really interesting place, isn't it? Because Western Buddhists, in my observation, are a little bit insular. And they are, in fact, we are, in fact, a little inclined to othering. Because we have the best spiritual practice. We really have the right idea. And those other people, and you can pick the other people of your choice, but you probably have some in mind, have the wrong idea. So we have work to do, too. And because I don't think, in fact, I'm going to talk about evolution in a minute, but I don't think that Buddhists are particularly the apex of spiritual evolution any more than anybody else is. So what's really interesting to me, because I've been doing quite a bit of study in this last couple of years, is that there are many people in many lineages of practice who are really looking at this. It's been very interesting to me. And so one author that I've gotten quite fond of, a man whose name is Dermot Omerchu, a great name, he's an Irish theologian, and he has a book out that's called Quantum Theology, actually, Quantum Physics and Theology. And he actually talks about, so this is Christian language here, he talks about how God has been incarnating ever since the Big Bang. How about that? You know, but you never heard that in church when you were a kid, you know. And that whatever it is that God is, is comp and he's very prone to using that kind of language, whatever it is that God is, is completely interwoven with all of creation. Kind of like what the Hopi were saying. This rattles a few cages, as you can imagine. Although I know a number of Buddhists who think, that sounds pretty cool, they're finally getting it, you know, so. And the notion that everything is incarnation actually does sound very Buddhist, and we are part of it. So here we are, us human beings, inhabiting this tiny planet, floating around in vast space. So some of you who have done Bob's 32 parts course know that these bodies are very, very interesting places, right? And I'm sure by now, some of I know there are people in this room who have taken that class several times. You can probably tell me more than I can say of all the things that the kidneys and the heart and you know the bile and the phlegm and the pus do. Uh, it's all very useful, and it's all cooking along. You know, the blood is moving around at some vast rate of speed. Thirty-six thousand miles a day. Thirty-six thousand miles a day. There you have it. And the food goes in at one end and comes out at the other end, and does all the your body does all the things that it does to take in all the 
nutriments and the cells are even cooperating as they do their work. How cool is that? And then, you know, all these different bits die. And you remember what Bob also told us last night, you are a cemetery. They're all, you know, dying in there. So we're just like the earth, aren't we? We're always changing and still evolving a new body every seven years. Mm, that's pretty good. Our appearances shift. You'd think with a new body we might get to be shiny and young, but it <laughs> does, doesn't seem to happen now. I kind of Maybe I'd like that. I'd like a 50-year-old body. That would be pretty cool. But it doesn't happen that way. So, you know, the body begins to shift and expand or shrink and sag, and ultimately it dissolves. Part of the deal. And so when that happens, all these particles, so remember the bit about the particles, the particles that have been around all 14 billion years, they don't, they don't stop being particles. They just disperse and go off and do something else. You know, maybe be a rock or a coyote or something else. So a poem I found recently says, we have calcium in our bones, iron in our veins, carbon in our souls, and nitrogen in our brains. 93% stardust with souls made of flames. We are all just stars that have people names. <laughs> well, nice, huh? Look around the room, stars with people names. So to go back to that bit again, most cosmologists believe that about 14 billion years ago, there was this major event, the Big Bang, right? And something happened. And so that's where the cosmos, as we know it, began. It's where time began. That's a little interesting piece. It's where space began. There is nothing that's knowable about before, if even before makes any sense, my physicist husband likes to tell me. But the Big Bang happened, and then there's all this soup of matter and energy, except it wasn't matter, mostly energy then, and it gradually began to separate out. But hundreds, thousands, millions, billions of years, it's an, it's an incomprehensible time span. And gradually the stars and the planets and the universe as we know it are formed. So this is the beginning of evolution. This is where things are beginning to evolve. And evolution has rolled along in fits and starts, evolving stars and then more stars and then there'd be supernova and after a while you've got different elements and planets and you know, lots of dead ends where things didn't work out apparently. And life begins after a while on our planet in very tiny, tiny, tiny ways. Nobody exactly knows how. And things keep moving along and rolling along, this kind of animal, that kind of animal, then everything dies off and it starts all over again and like that until very, very, very recently, very, very recently human beings emerge. You all know this, I think. I hope you do. But it's worth reflecting on as part of practice, I think. But here's the interesting thing. It's not 
done. It's not done. I used to think that somehow human beings were it. We were the ultimate kind of life form. Uh, probably not. Probably not. We might even be a mistake. I've thought about that on occasion, you know? So who knows what will happen next? Will, it, will we go extinct? There are, I know I have friends who think that that's true. We might. Or will we incorporate computers and technology into our beings? We'll be kind of like the Borg. You know, remember the Borg and Star Trek? They weren't very nice. But, you know, maybe. We don't know. That's part of evolution. Again, my physicist husband, who loves science fiction, loves to tell me that maybe the next piece of evolution actually is the world is inhabited by machines and robots. They learn what they need to learn from us, and then, I don't know, I guess we're done, or we're used to clean up things or something. So we are part of it. We are part of this evolutionary process that has rolled along for 14 billion years. And we are stardust making an appearance, a temporary appearance, here for only a short period of time, as you and me. So as Bob said last night, this business of being human is a story. It's a concept for a process that's going on for this particular collection of stardust, if you will. It's actually a kind of a convenience, and you might even consider it as like a zip code. You know, when I say Bob, you know, we can find Bob. You know, just like if I say, where am I? I'm in Santa Cruz. Uh, if I say Aptos, and put, you can find Aptos. You know a lot more about Aptos if I say Aptos. And I can also say 95003. And that's Aptos. And all of Aptos is kind of summed up in the zip code, right? So all of whatever it is that's human is summed up in this concept of being human. So a couple of things to think about that I like to think about when I talk about this stuff. So think about the Big Dipper. Now, we all love to go out and, oh, there's the Big Dipper. And if you're really cool, you can find the Little Dipper, too. But if you got into your trusty spaceship and you went out there, would there be a Big Dipper? Those stars aren't even remotely close to each other. It's a connect the dots. And they happen to be dots that show up conveniently in our sky. And somewhere along the line, people, sometimes they've been called the bear and sometimes it's the Big Dipper and, you know, like that. But it doesn't really exist. We look at the Pleiades and say, oh, the little sisters, the club, you know, up there. But they're not even particularly close to each other either. They just show up that way. Or you go down to a stream and you look in the stream and every place where there's a rock or a tree branch or something, there's an eddy, right? Does the eddy really exist? If you take the tree branch out, it's gone. So it's, it's an event that is conditioned by certain things, and it shows up as an eddy. And the Buddha is saying, exactly, this is how it is. 
We are a collection of events. Russell has a favorite joke. He likes to say, what is a helicopter? A helicopter is a collection of parts flying in formation. <laughs> you are a collection of parts flying in formation. And it's the formation that calls itself Mary Grace or Pratibha, you know, like that. So here's what's flying. Again, a little bit referring back to last night. There's form, your body, the stuff. There's uh, Vedana, all that feeling tone stuff we've been talking about, pleasant, unpleasant, and not neither. There is perception, that process of perceiving, that being able to perceive. There are mental formations. You know a lot about mental formations after a week on the cushion. And there's consciousness itself, kind of a broader, the background for the mental formations and all of this. When all of those come together, just like the rock and the stream, the eddy that is you is formed, right? And when they disperse, then there is no human being there. Interesting. And actually, I hadn't thought about this until right this moment, but I've had several conversations lately with people who are dealing with um, people with Alzheimer's who have lost their memory. And so they don't have the mental formation, a whole set of mental formations that they used to have. And the comment I hear most is, well, uh, are they there? Who's there? What's there? It's not the person I knew. It's a different event. Very strange. It's very interesting. I don't know the answer. I'm not sure there is an answer. So these things are loosely bound together. You know, we stick around for a while. And we think this is important, right? And when you're little, if you've, you know, if you've ever been around a baby, people get really excited. Auntie will say, who's that? And the baby says, me. And everybody goes, yay, right? <laughs> me, you know that you're me. And, and if you get really advanced as a baby, you know, baby might say, oh, I'm Mary Grace, you know, or something like that. And that's very exciting. So we all have that story. You all know who you are. We could talk endlessly in this room about I am a person who this, I am a person who did that. We have a whole story. We know, you know, you know you're a man or you're a woman, you're gay or you're straight, you're black or Hispanic or white. All kinds of things that we use to define ourselves. Sometimes the wrong story gets attached, and we know the suffering that comes with that. Yes, you are a boy. Well, I don't feel like a boy. I feel like a girl, but I'm caught in a boy's body. What do I do about that? Or I'm, you know, a boy caught in a girl's body. Fortunately, we're beginning to listen to that now. Or you're an immigrant, therefore, you must be uneducated and ignorant, and capable only of low-paid menial work. And we know that there are countless people with advanced degrees who are caught in that scenario, who for one reason or another aren't being accepted in the kind of work where they are truly skilled. 
it's so complicated. We are so obsessed with the idea that we know what is so. Now, it's really, I want to underline again, in time and space, identities are useful. It's really helpful that you know your name and you know your address and you do know your zip code and you know you know whose shoes or who's out there and and that helps. And it also helps to know that we are as temporary as that eddy. Now just suppose, just suppose that we really look around and we get it, that each body is made up of stardust, that each body is made up of particles that have been here for all those 14 billion years. They've shifted and changed, and they've become clouds of gas and stars and supernovas and asteroids and planets and water and plankton and plants and dinosaurs and lions and tigers and Alexander the Great and Mother Teresa, and finally is being you. You might have Alexander the Great in you. Imagine. Pretty cool. It's really a miracle. And what if, what if somewhere in these particles there is some kind of like a memory, you know, sort of maybe like memory foam, I don't know, that remembers that at one point 14 billion years ago everything was one. Everything was one. That would might change how we really began to understand things. You and the rocks and the ravens and the coyotes and the Republicans and the Democrats and the Trumpies and the Southern Baptists and the Catholics and the Buddhists and everyone else. One. One. We are born relational. You come into the world, you need to relate. That's how it is to be human. We can't, you know, you're not like little fishes that get spewed out into the water and you're on your own from, you know, for the first second. We yearn to belong. Babies who don't attach really, really suffer. And we desperately need to get over this practice of othering that Bob talked about last night. All of us need to get over it. All of the politics and all of the religions and all of the races and all of the ethnicities. Joanna Macy, that wonderful, wonderful Joanna. Joanna is 90, I think, and still teaching. She's an inspiration. She says, in the first movement, our infancy as a species. So she's comparing our human species to human life as well. We felt no separation from the natural world around us. Trees, rocks, and plants surrounded us with a living presence as intimate and pulsing as our own bodies. In that primal intimacy, which anthropologists call participation mystique, participation mystique, we were as one with our world as a child in the mother's womb. Separation, attachment, desiring, not the good kind of attachment, but the kind of wanting and desiring, 
isolation and ignorance and hatred are the root causes of suffering. The I-me-mind place is almost never helpful. We other, just like Bob said, I'm sort of underlining some of his stuff right now. We do us and them. We are totally tribal. We live in a very tribal culture, and our world is being torn apart by that tribalism. Tribalism of all kinds, religious tribalism, political tribalism, <laughs> ethnic tribalism, just goes on and on. Ageism, you know, all of that kind of thing. The, the young are a tribe who don't see the old. I can guarantee you that. And when we are tribal, we get afraid. You know, you're afraid of the people who are outside of your own village. That's been true for human beings for a long, long time. You know, if, it, if it, you came across somebody in the forest that you didn't recognize, chances were you killed them because that was the smart thing to do back in the beginning. Not from my village. Mm. Different color. Mm. Different religion speaks a different language. So we create this world of opposition and tension and struggle. And of course, we've got some big tribes like corporations who trample all of us and everything in their path. And the only thing important is winning and acquisition and money. And the inner world matters hardly at all. And it's really important to remember that those of us on the progressive side of the aisle, even those of us who are Buddhist, are also guilty of this. You know, I was saying to Bob that I could remember back when, you know, the monks from Abhayagiri were first coming to, this, to the States to teach, and there were people who had opinions about them because they didn't teach the same way that we did. Or maybe you have opinions about the Tibetan Buddhists because they practice differently, or the Zen folks. It's not so uncommon for that to happen, you know? So to look at it and to own it for ourselves. Neil deGrasse Tyson everybody's favorite cosmologist, talks about how our molecules are traceable to the stars. And he says, if you see the universe as something you participate in, as this great unfolding of a cosmic story, that, I think, should make you feel large, not small. You will never find people who truly grasp the cosmic perspective leading nations into battle. When you have a cosmic perspective, there's this little speck called Earth, and you say, you're going to do what? You're on this side of a line in the sand, and you want to kill people for what? Oh, to pull oil out of the ground. What? What? Not enough people in this world, I think, carry a cosmic perspective with them. It could be life-changing. It's so important. It's so, I can't stress to you how important it is. It's why I teach. I know it's why I teach. It's why Bob teaches. It's why Gil teaches. It's why some of you in this room also teach, you know, when you're at ISC. It's a concern that's at the heart 
in the heart of every serious spiritual teacher seeker that I know. So it's in all of your hearts as well. An image I've held, held onto for a long time in my teaching is the image of Aikido. So some of you have probably done Aikido. I've never done Aikido, but I love this image. So in Aikido, if the opposing force is coming towards you, if you're not doing Aikido like that, and it can be pretty messy, as we all know. But if you know how to do Aikido, you meet that opposing force and you move everything, everyone, to a safe space. It's a marvelous image. It's how we could begin to work in that way that honors everyone's participation in this bigger whole. The whole earth is constantly changing, just like my island is constantly changing. My island is changing a little faster than the rest of the earth, so it's a little easier to see. All beings are changing. Species are dying out. New ones are emerging. Mutations are happening all of the time. And we are part of this. So what can we, as conscious beings, contribute? So we are now, in this very instant, as we sit here, at this, we are now in this instant at the very front edge of evolution. In this moment, it's unfolding now. Isn't that amazing? Whew. It hasn't stopped. It's opening up in front of us in these next seconds and minutes and hours and days. Impermanence is not just about things being over. It's not just about things ending, retreats ending, climate changing, people dying. It's also about what's opening up in front of us, that we are constantly moving forward every moment, every second of our lives. We are conscious beings. We have the ability to wake up. The Buddha is very, very clear about this, that we each have the ability to wake up. So we have work to do. This is why we sit here. This is why we take weeks out of our lives to meditate and to see if we can wake up a little bit more. So I hope you can feel this. I hope you can use this to begin to evaluate the choices that you make, the way you treat your body, the way you treat all others, the way you treat human beings and animals and the earth and the plants and the ocean and the air. Because your choices are part of that evolutionary process. And they cannot not be part. They cannot not be part. The Buddha calls this karma. He calls this karma. This is the reverberation of our actions. And it's what will be left when we leave. So we are the inheritors of our own actions. That's part of the equanimity practice that some of you know. But so are our children and our grandchildren and the planet and generations to come. We're not solid and separate. We're not other. We can't be separate from our brothers and sisters throughout time and ahead of us. 
And that's not only brothers and sisters people, it's Brother Sun and Sister Moon and Brother Fox and Sister Elephant and Brother Rock and Sister Water. It's all connected. I lost one of my quotes. Where did it go? A woman named Judy Canato wrote, she said, emergent theories seem to confirm what mystics have been telling us all along, that we are one, not just all human beings, but all creation, the entire universe. As much as we may imagine and act to the contrary, human beings are not the center of the universe, even though we are a vital part of it. Nor are we completely separate from others, but live only in and through a complex set of relationships we hardly notice. Interdependent and mutual connections are integral to all life. So again, the Buddha teaches that being attached to the notion of separate and solid self creates suffering for ourselves and for all beings. He teaches that everything is in flux, constantly in flux, rising and falling away. Creation continues in its mysterious, sacred, and wonderful way. So what would it take for us to realize that we are unfinished, that we are still being formed, that the universe is unfinished, and is still being formed. And that maybe even the idea of finished doesn't make sense. Waking up to this vast world of change could change, could also transform how we live our lives. So this is the call to all awakened beings. It's the cry of our suffering planet. It's the summons from the Buddha. Can we take responsibility? Can we wake up? Can we acknowledge our part in creation, our part in suffering, our part in evolution? One last quote from Joanna. She says, she's talking, she talks about the turnings, and this is the third turning. She says, now harvesting these gains, we are ready to return. The third movement begins. Having gained distance and sophistication of perception, we can turn and recognize who we have been all along. Now it can dawn on us. We are our world knowing itself. We can relinquish our separateness. We can come home again and participate in our world in a richer, more responsible, and poignantly beautiful way than before in our infancy. Can we take responsibility? Can we wake up? Can we acknowledge our part in creation? 
our part in suffering and our part in the ongoing evolution. So let's breathe together for just a moment. What comes to mind is the great Tibetan chant of compassion, Om Mani Padme Hung. So I'd like to invite us to chant it together. The way I like to do it is all pretty much on one tone. But as soon as we get going, anyone who is capable of harmonizing is most welcome to do so. In my humble opinion, we don't sing enough in the Buddhist world. So we'll get started a little bit. Om Mane Padme Hung cannot tell you <laughs> how honored I am to be able to talk to you like this and how good it is to be with people 
who will listen. So I thank you very much for your presence and for your practice. <laughs>